Now then, let's uh, turn to Exodus chapter 2 again. And reading at verse 3. But when she could no longer hide him, she took an ark of bulrushes or papyrus reeds for him, daubed it with asphalt and pitch, put the child in it, and laid it in the reeds by the river's bank. And his sister stood afar off to know or to see what would be done to him. She stood afar off to know what would be done to him. Now last uh, Lord's Day, both morning and evening, we looked at the faith of Moses' parents, his father Amram, and particularly his mother Jochebed. And with God's help, I'd like to take uh, one more look at their faith with you before we move to consider Moses himself. Now, you'll remember that we saw how Jochebed was expecting this child at the worst possible time in Providence because the persecution that God's people were experiencing in Egypt had now reached the point of genocide. And that genocide itself had escalated to the point where the government under Pharaoh had given permission effectively to any Egyptian to dispose of any male Hebrew child. But we read in this passage how Moses' mother and father decide to keep the child. Of course, that is a commandment anyway that thou shalt not kill. And the life of a child (coughs) in the womb is as important as the life of anybody else. But we're told that they kept this child by faith as well. The faith that looked towards God's promise that they would be liberated from Egypt and a promise that was helped by a special sign that God gave them, as God often gives when we're exercising faith in really difficult circumstances. He gave a sign of a special um, appearance on the child's face. That was a token from them that God's hand was on the child and that God would keep them and preserve them. So she hid him three months. But after three months passed, it looked as though she and her husband gave way to unbelief. It looked like that because she cast him at that point out onto the Nile, which is what some other women were doing when they gave birth to male children. And in fact, when Stephen, the preacher in Acts chapter 7, when he looks back over these events, he tells us that many of the women cast out their children onto the Nile And he uses the same expression for Jochebed, that eventually, after three months, she cast out the child. But you'll remember we noted that these castings out were different. 
they cast their children out in unbelief to certain death. But Jochebed casts out her child in faith, believing that her child will live. In fact, her casting out of Moses was just as much in faith as her hiding of him for three months. Both the hiding and the casting were done in faith. She was casting him upon God's care and upon God's keeping. And we saw the proof of that in everything she did. She pitched an ark of bulrushes or papyrus reeds. Now the word for ark here is the same word used for Noah's ark. Noah's ark was prepared for the salvation of his household. She prepares this small ark for the preservation of her household too, and, perhaps unknown to herself, the preservation of all Israel. But she is interested in preservation, not destruction. That is why she pitches inside and outside. As well as pitching the ark, you'll remember that she placed it. She doesn't, as some children's illustrative books set its sail down the river, she actually places it immediately beside the bank, hidden partially in high stalks of papyrus reeds. She puts it there to be found. And last of all, she sets a watch over that ark in the shape of her oldest daughter, Miriam. She herself doesn't stand by watching but she places Miriam in the proximity to watch. Now, although Jochebed isn't involved in this scene when Pharaoh's daughter comes and sees the ark and so on, although she's not present, she is very much involved. She herself is waiting and watching too. It's not the same kind of watching as Miriam has, but nonetheless it is a watching. It is a watching in prayer. Her daughter might be physically watching with her eyes at the river bank, but Jochebed is watching over this basket in the secret place and watching over it in prayer, asking God to lead the right person to her child, who will be the means of the child's preservation and the family's preservation. And who knows but by this time that there's a sense growing in her heart that this child is destined for the preservation of Israel itself. Maybe, maybe not. But Lord, lead the right person to find this child. In other words, she's watching and waiting and praying to see if God would do for this child what she can't do anymore. It's amazing, friends, how surprisingly difficult our situations can become as Christians. How hard providence can appear to be. And I'm quite sure three months before this, when she took the child and hid the child, with a special sign of God's preservation on the child's face. I'm sure she never thought that the day would come just in three months' time 
when she would be at the end of her resources and that she would reach the point where she actually had to cast the child, you could see, as Tennyson said, into the jaws of death and into the mouth of hell because the Nile was defeat. The Nile, besides the sun, was the great Egyptian divinity. They worshipped the sun god, the Ra, which is in the name Pharaoh, and they worshipped the Nile. And for the Hebrew male child to be devoured by the Nile was as though the serpent was winning the war against the seed of the woman, against the seed of God, as though evil was prevailing over good and the dark over the light. And she must have partly felt like that, that that this was a defeat to, to lay a coffin, as it were, with a child into the jaws of death and into the mouth of hell. But she's being taught certain things. She wasn't just casting Moses out onto God's care. She was herself cast onto God's care, like perhaps she had never been before. But she's being taught certain things. First of all, she's being taught the importance of fervent, believing prayer. And I mean that, and both these, not just prayer, but fervent and believing prayer, which is how the Lord wants us to pray. Because the fervent, effective prayer of a righteous man or a righteous woman availeth much with God. He wants our prayers fervent. He wants them believing and therefore effectual. And we're usually taught to pray like that in situations where nothing but prayer will do. There are many situations in life that call for prayer and work. In fact, most do. And if work is to be done and you're praying, forget your prayer. There's no point in praying for something that you can put your hand to and God wants you to put your hand to. But sometimes to learn the power of prayer properly and to learn no real need of God and to give glory to God for what is going to be done, he reduces us to a place where nothing but prayer will do. And that is very often in connection with our own family and in connection with our own children. We have done this and we have said this and know that it's nothing more that can be done and there is nothing more that can be said. We need to cast them into the care of God and of God alone. And that's where she's brought. At least during the three months she was hiding him. She had a hand in that. But once she shuts the lid of the ark, it's over. That child is now in the care of God. But that doesn't mean that she's inactive. No, she is praying, perhaps like she has never prayed before, because now it is time to pray. Has the Lord brought yourself to that? In connection with someone, perhaps, perhaps even your child, as it is the case here, there's nothing you can do but pray. Well, will you not pray then? Has he not brought you to that place just so that you would do that and give glory to God? And as well as being taught the importance of fervent and believing prayer, she's also being taught in connection with it 
the importance of self-denial. Because I'd like to go into this more just now than I can really, but there's something about proper prayer and self-denial that go together. I don't think, friends, that many of us understand sometimes how self-centered and selfish our prayers actually are. How many of the things we want, we want really for ourselves. James famously says in his letter that you ask and you do not receive. He says you do not receive because you ask amiss. You're asking in the wrong way. And he says, how are you asking in the wrong way? Well, you're asking, he says, in order that you might consume the thing upon your own lusts. It, it is somehow yourself and yourself alone that is at the heart of your prayer. Now, friends, <laughs> we have to pray for ourselves and we have needs. How can we but pray for our own salvation, our own deliverance, the salvation and deliverance of our own flesh and blood and so on? But there is a selfish way of even praying for yourself. And praying for yourself is very different from a selfish prayer. And sometimes the Lord again brings us to a place where we reach a point of self-denial. Where he is then willing to grant a request. I, I made a reference just a couple of weeks ago to Hannah in this connection. Hannah, who of course had Samuel as a child. Hannah was praying for a child and God wasn't giving her a child. Why? Well, because her request was to do with herself. It was to do with her own childlessness exclusively. Especially the fact that she was in some kind of competition with her sister wife who had plenty children. And she wanted a child well, partly for that reason. And God didn't give the child. God didn't give her the child until the re she reached the point where she wanted a child for God's sake, not just for her own. And the proof of that was her willingness to vow to return the child to tabernacle service if God would give her that child. She vowed that vow and God opened her womb. Because at last her prayer wasn't just about herself. It was about God. And it was about God's cause. And when that took the centre place, God answers the prayer. That requires sometimes in us a lot of heart searching. Of course we pray for ourselves. But watch that it's not a selfish prayer. Put the Lord at heart and reach the place where you put yourself out for God. And then see what the Lord would do. So here she is able to put the child into God's hands. And as far as she knows perhaps the child is going out of her reach. For all she knows maybe she might not see the child for a long long time. She doesn't know but she's willing. And watch the Lord work. When she gets to that place. Cross-bearing and self-denial, friends, must always be at the heart of her Christian life. Don't forget that. Cross-bearing 
and self-denial. Now let's leave her there in the secret place, watching over the ark just as much as Miriam is watching over it near the river bank. And let's move the spotlight away from the mother and onto the God who hears her prayer and the God who is ready to respond to the earnest, fervent prayer of his child accompanied with self-denial for his sake. Because immediately his special providence begins to work. Now I say a special providence and sometimes when we say something like that it's important to emphasize that there's a sense in which every providence is special just because it is a providence. If you're not a Christian of course things happen and they're just things that happen, they're just simply events. If you're a Christian you know that there's no such thing as an event apart from God. In other words, every event is providential. Providence is just a special word that describes the way in which God governs everything that he's created. All the works of God are either creation or providence. In creation, he brings things into being. In providence, he just watches over them and governs them. And as your catechism reminds you, in connection with what is providence, it is his most holy, wise and powerful, preserving and governing of all his creatures and all their actions. Let me just put that the other way around because it's easier to get a hold of it like that. Providence means that God governs all his creatures and all all their actions in a way that is powerful he energizes it it is wise and it is holy his government of absolutely everything so that as Jesus says not a sparrow falls to the ground apart from him Just just a sparrow how random is that How random is the fall of a sparrow from the sky? Not random, Christ says. But we speak of special providence. I mean, that's that's the sense in which all providence is special. Because God's the author of it all. But we speak of special providence in a twofold sense. First of all, providence is special because it has a special um, emphasis on the believer's life. The Bible tells us that all things work together for good to them that love God and who are called according to his purpose. So that means that as a Christian here today, you love God, you've been called by him. That means that everything in your life is working for good. May not feel like it, may not look like it, but it's irrelevant because it is. And the word of God tells you that. It's a strange weaving God weaves when it has so many dark threads as well as so many light threads. But believe it, the fabric of providence that is around your life is for your good. It is for your welfare, for your everlasting good. Were it not, it would not be permitted. He would not govern it in that way. So you're to remember that all your providence 
is working for your good. So it's special in that sense. Sad to say, as an unbeliever, you don't have that promise. The promise that all things work together for good is for those that love God and are called according to his purpose. Romans 8. If you don't love God, you can't just say that. It's not working for your good. But it's a wonderful thought to think that the exercise of faith changes all that. From the moment you believe, you can rest assured that everything in your life is actually working for your good, light or dark. We speak of special providence in another sense. We speak of special providence when God shows us that he is actually working all things together for the good. In other words, it's not something that we simply have to believe anymore, but something we can see clearly because God just works. Works in such a way that we're constrained to say, oh, he's done that. He brought that together with that and together with that in such a way that we are constrained to bow before God in awe and in adoration and to say, well, that's providence. I mean, it's all providence, but that is providence because that is the hand of God and I see the hand of God unmistakably working on my behalf. And that's what I mean here when this woman in prayer is brought to a place where God acts in a special way on her behalf. She knows that God is at work. And so do we. We can't, we can't read this passage without admiring the things that happen because first of all somebody happens to pass by somebody happens to pass by and lo and behold it's Pharaoh's daughter Pharaoh had many royal residences and obviously one of the royal residences was near the tributary to the Nile where this woman laid the child and she comes here to bathe Her servant girls, were told, were going up and down the river bank. That's just to guard her modesty and her privacy. But her own special attendant is with her all the time. But God (coughs) took her there. God took her there. She happened to pass by. And, of course, she just happens to see the basket. She happens to see it nestled in the reeds which could grow so high. And she fetches it. She sends her own personal attendant to fetch it. She opens the lid. Notice it's not an open basket. Some of these illustrations show a, a little basket, like a Moses basket, people call it. But this is essentially, remember, to preserve the symbolism of death and life. This is like a, a this is a flat chest, like Noah's Ark, with a lid, and it's sealed, pitched, closed. wasn't even easy to open it. But open it, she does. And when she opens the lid, she either recognises the clothing on the child or just sees that the child is circumcised. However, she knows it's a Hebrew child. She knows it's a Hebrew child. And then it just happens that at that point the child cries. So that she is moved with compassion. There is a relationship between child crying and the stirring of compassion in her heart just happens it happens because God makes it happen just then 
and of course you've got to trace all that back. I mean, Pharaoh's daughter's decision to be there, her decision to take the walk, her decision to walk at that time, her desire to bathe at that time, it's all there. Just reminds us of how great God is and how wonderful providence is. And when it appears, we see it, but it's there all the time. And of course this takes us further because God's providential rule and government isn't just governing external things, it's going into the heart, into the decisions that people make. And you see that so clearly in connection with Pharaoh's daughter. The decisions that he make, she makes are decisions that are influenced and overruled by God's Spirit. We sometimes forget that. The, the book of Proverbs tells us that the, the heart of the king himself is in the hand of the Lord like rivers of water. And he can turn it whichever way he pleases. That's how it's described in Proverbs. Now, when our faith is weak, we forget that. You've got to see a person and you're afraid of speaking to the person because you think the person is going to respond in such and such a way. And so faith says, well, I'm going to say nothing. You know, you know that experience very well. You've got to see someone in authority and maybe it has to do with uh, your Christian principles. Somebody in your workplace and you've got to see them about Christian principles. And say, well, I know how he's going to react or I know how she's going to react to that. Uh, like Jacob when he was meeting Esau after 20 years. Last time he saw his brother Esau, Esau wanted to kill him, and J Jacob was terrified of meeting him. But the Lord, we're told, had turned Esau's heart towards him, because God is able to do that. He, he, he can work in the heart of these people so that when you speak to them, it's not the way you expected it to be, because God was in it. You asked and you prayed, and the Lord was in it. He turned their hearts. Now, the same thing happens here. Notice her unexpected compassion. Now, I'm saying it's unexpected, and maybe that's unfair, but her father is certainly a very cruel and heartless person who thinks nothing of committing genocide on a national scale against thousands upon thousands of children. She's not like that. Now, I know you can't judge children by their parents, and we should be very careful of doing that. There is a kind of familial set of characteristics that do pass down from one generation to the next. But watch that you don't judge anybody by their parents or where they came from. We're told um, one of the most precious verses in connection with that is told us uh, in connection with King Jehoram of Israel, uh, who was a really wicked king. And uh, a prophet was sent to tell him that his family would die um, and would die under God's judgment um, but we're told that God had, was going to take away uh, the infant who was ill at that time uh, King Jeroboam's wife had gone to see the prophet to see if the child would live and uh, the prophet was given a message to tell her that the child would not live but that God was taking him away because there was something good in him towards the Lord God of Israel the, the child was dying because he was good God was taking the child away out of that evil house and out of that evil family there's a remarkable comfort in that 
You know, looking at that from a distance, you'd have thought that that was a very desolate time. Whereas it was a wonderful time that God was removing that child because there was something good in that child towards the Lord God of Israel. So don't, don't judge a child uh, by their parents or by their family or anything of that kind. The fact of the matter is that God gives this woman a compassion towards the child that she finds in the basket. And notice her unexpected decisions. First, she decides to spare the child. Now, even if she had felt compassion, this is a big step to take. It's not just against her father's will as the Pharaoh, the great king of Egypt. It's actually against his edict. There has been an edict passed that every male child of the Hebrews is to be killed. She goes against that. Now, Miriam, Moses' older sister, we don't know how old she is. Her older brother Aaron is only three. I don't know how old she is. She's obviously of a reasonable age to, to perform this function. She's looking on. And friends, I, I can't help but think that uh, every time we see her, she's a woman of faith herself too. But I wonder if faith is in her own young heart at this time too. She, she, she isn't just watching either, I don't think. I think like her mother, she's watching and she's praying. and She's got to try and sense what's going on. She's got to get the feel for what's happening when she sees from a distance that they're picking up the child. There's a conversation going on. She's probably able to hear the conversation. She's got to discern, do, do I intervene? Can I step in? Can I say something? The remarkable thing is that she comes out in such a way that seems to me anyway to indicate that she has strong faith herself because she makes suggestions that are incredible. Number one is adopt this child as your own. There's no word of adoption until Miriam says it, which is a remarkable thing. To spare a Hebrew child is even one thing. To consider adopting a Hebrew child into the royal family is another thing altogether. But she makes that suggestion. She makes it. How bold faith can make us when, when it's really in operation. We slink around so furtively and so frightened when faith is so weak. But when faith is strong, we become like a lion. Adopt the child. And what's more, she says, the child needs a nurse right now. Let me find a nurse, a wet nurse, from amongst the Hebrews. Why on earth should Pharaoh's daughter agree to anything in that package? There are wet nurses amongst the Egyptian women. There are plenty of Egyptian boys to adopt. But she decides to adopt. And in God's providence, if this is Hatshepsut, the daughter of the I, which I strongly believe she is, he was the third king in this nationalistic 18th dynasty. She had a, she had a girl, no boy. Even God was in that. She wanted a son. And God's providence here was a son for her. And then she makes the unexpected decision. And you almost feel that, well, you don't almost feel, you know that the Lord's in this. The natural thing for her to do, even after agreeing for a Hebrew wet nurse, would say, well, take the wet nurse and I'll, I'll bring her up to the palace. No. Mysteriously, she says, 
you find the wet nurse and I'll give the child to the nurse who will raise her for me until the time comes when I bring the child to the palace. And of course, Miriam says, well, I'll go and find one. And she goes straight back home and she finds her own mother who can hardly believe uh, what God has done. Can hardly believe what God has done. And imagine the mother's joy when she takes the child that she had not long ago put in a coffin effectively and she takes the child home raising it and raising it for Pharaoh's daughter. She honoured him, God and God honoured her. And let me say to you that that's always the way it is. I said last week the way in which he honours you is maybe not always the way we would predict it but it will always happen. And it will happen in visible ways. You honour God. God will honour you. So in God's providence, this child is delivered from the jaws of death and the mouth of hell to spend his formative years not in Pharaoh's palace, but on his mother's knee and in her own home. Last of all, when the time comes after a few years and I'm not sure how many years because there was, was an initial weaning of a child which would take place around three years of age but then there was often amongst many of the ancient peoples what they would call a weaning from the nursery which took place in about the age of six or seven. I would suspect that perhaps that was more the age here that she takes the child back to the palace. And I don't think she's altogether different from the way Hannah uh, took her Samuel to the tabernacle. I know they're taking them to many different places, uh, but it's not unlike the way Hannah took Samuel. She knows that she's putting him here in obedience to God's will. God worked here in an unmistakable way. So hard as it is to put him into a foreign palace and a heathen palace, She will do that because the God who has delivered him from the coffin will deliver him from that palace too. And again she's called to cast him on the Lord's care and on his keeping. And it's strange when she does that that God gives her another token. And I'm finishing with this really. He gives her another token. Um, Again, when we obey in difficult circumstances... God always gives tokens. I've found that in life. I'm sure you've found it too as a Christian. The token is in the naming of the child. Pharaoh, sorry, Pharaoh's daughter names him Moses because she says, I drew him out of the water. The peculiar thing about that is that it's actually a Hebrew name. Moshe, which means to draw out. It makes you feel that the real author of the child's name is actually Jochebed herself. That she had called him Moses. And she probably told Pharaoh's daughter that. And it attracted her because it has its own meaning in Egyptian. Providence again, you see. Uh, Mose in the Moses is exactly the same word uh, as you're getting in uh, Egyptian in in the pharaohs of the 18th dynasty. They, they're all Mose, Ah Mose, 
Thutmose, Ramose, and here he happens to be Mose. And she says, yes, I'll call him that, because he was thrown out of the water. It fits seamlessly into Egyptian society, but it has the Hebrew connotation. And of course, in doing that, God is working. Because to draw out has an important symbolism in connection with Moses. Because it describes what Moses is going to do and it describes what was done to him. It describes, first of all, what Moses is going to do. The great event that governs his life is the Exodus. He is the one that God will lay his hand on to bring his people out of bondage, backsliding, darkness into the liberty eventually of the promised land and he's going to do do that by drawing them through the Red Sea a Red Sea that will swallow up and drown Pharaoh and his cohorts and his chariots but the children of Israel will be led through that water and drawn out of it he will draw out his people into glorious liberty and of course He himself was thrown out too. Into the waters of death he went. But out mysteriously he comes to. And in all these things the church of the Old Testament is being trained in pictures. Like a kind of picture book training. In every generation to look forward to a Messiah who will live through death. Who will conquer through death. Who will save his people from death but only save his people from death by dying himself in their womb and in their place. He will come out of the waters of death and deliver his people in the process from the waters of death. In every generation, God's people are taught that. So he spends his earliest years, like I said, where every child should be. He's nurtured by his mother's teaching and he's wrapped up in his prayers. And at Pharaoh's expense, uh, after the service last week, two people mentioned to me uh, what an elder had said years ago in Stornoway. I knew the elder well myself, that this is the first case of child benefit. Um, uh, That's true. That's That's true. This is child benefit. She didn't expect that. She didn't expect to be raising her own child at Pharaoh's expense. Um, But the interesting thing is, this is the way God often works. Like like Paul, one and a half thousand years later, or even like Martin Luther, three thousand years later, he is raised inside a system that he would ultimately be led to shake to its very core and to its foundation. This passage has two interesting texts when you contrast them. And let me really close with this. You find man's wisdom and God's wisdom. If you look at chapter 1 here, let me just close by highlighting these two texts for you. In chapter 1 here of Exodus, and in verse 10, this is Pharaoh, this is the wisdom of the serpent going to deal with Israel, with the people of God. Come, he says, let us deal shrewdly with them. So here's the cunning of the world. Lest they multiply 
And it happens in the event of war that they join our enemies and fight against us and go up out of the land. So the whole machinery of Satan is going to be shrewd against God's people. But if you go forward to chapter 2 and verse 10, here's the shrewdness of God who shows himself more shrewd than the people who deal with him. Verse 10, the child grew and she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter and he became her son. So she called his name Moses, saying, Because I drew him out of the water. God just simply turns the tables as he alone is able to do. And as Moses grows up, he's got an important decision to make. And that's in connection with who he was by birth and who he had become by adoption. And that's a big decision for him to make because his eternal destiny depends on it. And uh, God willing, we'll look at it tonight. Let's stand to pray. (coughs) O Lord, O God, your works are past finding out. And uh, we pray to take careful note of providence. If we do, we will have providences to note. And we are thankful for the way in which we have seen you in times past, working everything to the good in the lives of those who love the Lord and who are called according to his purpose. And now our own prayer is that all of us may be in that number so that we could see everything working for our good, nothing against us, but everything for us. Whereas if we remain on the dark side, then everything will eventually be against us, with nothing for us at all. O Lord, help us to choose well, to enter the straight gate, and to make your calling and election sure. In the precious name of Christ we pray. Amen. Let's close singing in Psalm 33. And at verse 8. Psalm 33 at verse 8. Let earth and all that live therein with reverence fear the Lord... Let all the world's inhabitants dread him with one accord. Why? For he did speak the word, and done it was without delay. Established, (coughs) firmly stood whatever he did say. And notice this, this ties in with what we had at the end there. God doth the counsel bring to naught, which heathen folk do take. And what the people do devise, of none effect doth make. O, oh, but the counsel of the Lord doth stand for ever sure, and of his heart the purposes from age to age endure. 8 to 11, we stand to sing. <laughs> Yeah.